you'd like some new experiences on your next vacation, we've got some novel suggestions in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting inspired to explore Brazil and Croatia. From old world Mediterranean resorts with a Slavic accent to tropical cities and jungle outposts pulsing with the beat of an emerging powerhouse economy, these two countries are charming more and more Americans. Travel writer Seth Kugel went so far as to move to Sao Paulo. He'll tell us how all you need is a hammock and 12 bucks a day to feel the rhythm of the Amazon on a commuter ferry. It's the peacefulness, the vastness, and of course every night a sunset that cannot possibly be imagined. And tour guide Marian Kriskovic is here to take your calls to get the most out of Croatia. A young country with a fascinating history, a new sense of hope, and a stunning Adriatic coastline. We're uncovering surprises in Brazil and Croatia on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Two intriguing destinations are the focus today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get an insider's guide to Croatia in just a bit. Let's start with an overview of Brazil for budget travelers with Seth Kugel. Seth divides his time between Sao Paulo and New York. He writes the Frugal Traveler column for the New York Times. Seth, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. You spend a good part of your life living in Brazil. Tell us about that. Well, I went down a, a few years ago to be a reporter. I had been learning Portuguese for a while, and Brazil is this enormous country that's becoming ever more important in the world, beyond what we all know it for, soccer and beaches and samba and carnival and all that kind of stuff. It's becoming an economic powerhouse as well, and I went down to cover it. have really only been dragged back by this frugal traveler job I just got. You got sucked into the whole carnival samba energy of Brazil. Well, there's that, but there is a whole other country out there that we don't know about so much as Americans, and we tend to stereotype it. Not that there isn't huge uh, soccer fanaticism and not that there aren't fantastic beaches and not that carnival isn't a whole lot of fun, but we're talking about a country of 190 million people that's almost as big as the continental U.S. or maybe as big. But its economy is about one-tenth of ours, right? It's certainly one of the top ten economies in the world now and growing ever faster, and everyone wants a piece of it. Wow. Why is it growing so fast? They have incredible natural resources, so there's a huge amount of arable land, so tons of soy is being grown there. They also have a huge sugarcane industry, which becomes ethanol. They've just discovered all kinds of new oil, so they're about to become a pretty major oil power. They also build airplanes, and they build tons and tons of cars, although none of the car companies are actually Brazilian. They're producing cars for Japanese and American and European makers. In Brazil, the two major cities are Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo and you choose to live in Sao Paulo. How would you characterize the two cities, and, and what's your take on Sao Paulo? People will often compare them to New York and Los Angeles, with uh, Sao Paulo being New York, kind of the culturally elite, sophisticated kind of a place, and Rio de Janeiro to Los Angeles, both still quite sophisticated, but also more of a laid-back, beach, beauty-oriented culture, and I think that that's pretty accurate. Residents of the two cities uh, have a huge rivalry going on, Rio is right on the beach, so people go and they think of the girl from Ipanema. Well, Ipanema Beach is right in the middle of the city, so there's good reason for that. Sao Paulo is a massive megalopolis with tall buildings everywhere you look, but an incredible kind of uh, music scene and cultural scene and theater scene. So, yeah, take your pick. They're both great. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We're speaking with Seth Kugel. He's the New York Times frugal traveler, and he lives a good part of his year in Sao Paulo. Uh, Gary's on the line in Royal Oak, Michigan. Gary, thanks for your call. Do you have a comment for Seth? Yes, I just uh, living in the Detroit area, Delta started with a new nonstop, and we're heading to Sao Paulo in February, which... I had read was supposed to be great weather and cheaper because it's a little before Carnival there, but we were having real problems trying to find what I call reasonably priced hotels, even below $200, and wondered what types of suggestions Seth might have for uh, how to get a flavor of Sao Paulo and, and Brazil without staying in a, an American chain at, at an extraordinary price like New York would be if we went there. That's a great question. Sao Paulo is a very expensive city. I live there. I know lots of things are expensive. The easiest way to solve this problem is to try to stay in a Mercury hotel. It's a French chain, but those are very reasonable and very nice to stay in. So you'll certainly be able to get under $200 there. A step down from that is going to be the, the Formula One hotels, which are, I think, these days even under $100. Okay. Now, this is not utter luxury we're talking about, but these are 
uh, clean, reasonable, and well-located hotels. The other thing I'd really urge you is to not just go to Sao Paulo. It's great that there's a nonstop there. But, you know, if you can hop on a shuttle to Rio or you can even get out of Sao Paulo, the city, and see some of the coastline nearby or head up into the – actually into the mountains or even into the neighboring state of Minas Gerais, which is a six- or seven-hour drive or another quick plane ride. I wouldn't just go to Brazil and stay in Sao Paulo, even if you can get out for a day or two. Are there day trips or so that are good besides the beach from Sao Paulo? Sure. There are towns pretty close to Sao Paulo. It's a very densely populated state, the state of Sao Paulo. There are um, sort of cultural centers all around. There's a a place called Campos do Jordão, which is kind of a mountain town, which is used as a resort for a lot of weekend travelers from Sao Paulo. There are are parks and, and mountains within the very city of Sao Paulo, if you can get out of there. There's even an indigenous area where Native Americans live within the city of Sao Paulo. It's an enormous place. And there's plenty of stuff to do within an hour drive of the city that doesn't feel quite so urban. Sounds great. Seth, it's interesting when when Gary asked about hotels, you gave the same answer somebody might give about Paris. You mentioned the sort of budget chains, Mercury and Formula One. It's an example of how colonial Brazil is, perhaps, in the big cities. Well, I'll tell you, Sao Paulo doesn't look too much like a colonial city, although the old colonial center is quite nice although a little bit run down these days. Or I guess just the European influence. Sure. Well, the chains are all over Brazil, and it's just another example of everyone wanting to do business in Brazil now. Hotel chains, car companies, pharmaceutical companies, people recognize that a 190-million-person country is a huge market, especially as the middle class there is growing. So you will see a whole lot of of foreign investment and foreign chains in all aspects of life in Brazil. That's driving the prices up that Gary's dealing with then. Sure. Well, another problem with the prices is that, uh, you know, Brazil has weathered the worldwide financial crisis very well, and that has led a lot of people to invest in Brazil, uh, which has led to a lot of demand for the Brazilian real, which has, you know, led the real to become more powerful against the dollar, which means we're all paying for that when we take money out in our ATM cards when we're down there. Now, Brazilians have been called the most musical people on the planet. How can Gary enjoy the music scene when he's in Sao Paulo? Sure. Certainly, I would try to head to some of the smaller uh, samba clubs. You think of Rio as the center of samba, but there's plenty of live samba. I would be sure you spend a night in one of the samba spots in Vila Madalena, which is a great sort of bohemian-style neighborhood. There's a ton of of young people milling around and going to these um, casual beer bars. But it's also a very mixed-age scene as well, especially if you can find a little nook that has live music, and that's easy enough to find. You know, one tip is they just started Time Out Sao Paulo magazine in English in Sao Paulo. Oh, great. So as soon as you get there, you want to pick up that magazine. It's really the first English-language guide to Sao Paulo that's in magazine form that's ever existed. And so that'll solve many of your problems, and they'll certainly have live music listings there. Fantastic. Great idea. That's what I pick up in London right off the bat is Time Out, and now you can get it in Sao Paulo. So, Gary, you can check out the music scene. We'll look forward to it. Thanks. You bet. Happy travels. We're talking with Seth Kugel, and Seth Kugel is the New York Times frugal traveler, and Seth splits his time between Sao Paulo in Brazil and the United States. Seth, when you're thinking about traveling in Brazil, of course you've got the intrigue of the Amazon and, and getting out into the jungle, basically. What's your advice there? The Amazon is actually a very tricky place to visit. It is so vast and so hard to get around that you really need to plan very carefully. Are you going to go to sort of an eco-resort, which will take care of everything for you and set up trips? Well, this might be the one circumstance where I could say, yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. You don't necessarily want to go off on your own. However, if you are a little bit more adventurous, my favorite thing I've ever, ever done in Brazil, in fact, I loved it so much I did it twice, is take a boat, a four- or five-day boat trip down one of these major rivers, whether it be the Amazon or one of the other many tributaries that are there, which is how people get around in the Amazon. There's no highway from one major city to another. So they take these boats, you sling up a hammock, and you sleep in these hammocks for for four nights. And and it sounds like it's going to be you know, kind of disgusting to be sleeping with all these other folks right around you. But it turns out that there's quite a breeze. It's very, very relaxing. I call it kind of like the the $12 a day spa. They serve you three meals a day. The meals are not fantastic, but they're certainly passable. 
uh, and you bring your own snacks and uh, you just kind of sit in a hammock all day and talk to people if you can, if you can muster a few words in Portuguese or there'll often be some other tourists on board that you can talk to as well. And it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic experience if you don't mind sort of the communal bathrooms and, uh, and that sort of stuff. You say it's, it's your favorite experience for a four-day you know, visit to the natural wonders of, of Brazil. Tell us more about that. What's it sound like? What's the sunset like? What are the uh, villages you float by like? You just said it. The, the, the sounds are sounds of birds and the occasional putt-putting uh, canoe coming by with a little motor attached to it. The most striking wildlife you'll see are probably the pink dolphins, the, the freshwater dolphins that are in and around the Amazon and the river surrounding it. So once in a while, everyone will run over to the side of the boat and there'll be a bunch of dolphins kind of diving up and out of the water and, and diving back in. The boats will stop at little towns along the way. They're not primitive towns by any means, but they are isolated so there'll be, you know, sort of dirt roads and you can get a Coke or buy some batteries or something like that. But these are places that there's no road to. So uh, everyone comes in and out by boat. It's basically an entire culture based around rivers. And then, of course, there's the Amazon itself along the sides of the river. But the river's so wide, I don't want people to think that like every moment a toucan is coming to rest on your wrist or anything like that. It's not like going to a, a safari in Africa or anything. But it's the peacefulness, the vastness, and of course, every night, a sunset that, you know, cannot possibly be imagined. Standing on the deck of this boat, watching the sun go down over the Amazon, man, you, you know you're traveling. Wow, the $12 a day mobile spa on the Amazon Paradise. And you can book this while you're in Rio de Janeiro, or is there a lot of different companies? Oh, there's, there's no booking. I, I don't want it to sound like it's so luxurious. There are numbers you can call in reserve, but mostly you just show up. There's no rooms or anything. You have to buy a hammock. Uh, you find out what days the boats are leaving, and, and, and that's the sort of thing tourist organizations or guidebooks, they usually have that kind of stuff. But you just go the day before and buy a ticket. Um, you know, it's usually something like 50 bucks or 80 bucks or something like that for four, five, six, seven days. Buy your snacks. Bring a five-gallon jug of water because you're going to want your own water on board, although they do sell bottled water. And then you just go. Is this a kind of transportation for commuters or is it just a tourist yeah. trip? It's not in any way a tourist trip. I call it the Greyhound bus of, of the Amazon. You know, these are real economies. The Amazon is millions of people living in it. And just like anyone else, anywhere else in the world, there's people going from place to place doing business or moving or looking for work. And this is literally how people get around. Uh, you're going to be with at least 95% Brazilians. All over the world, this is a magical thing to do. In India, you got the inland passage in Kerala where you've got a similar boat and you just float by for days sitting on the corrugated tin roof of this boat watching magical India float by. In Norway, you got the mail boat that goes up the Hurtgruten all the way to North Cape. You can do the inland passage up to Alaska by hopping on and off of ferries. And in Brazil, you've got Seth Kugel's recommendation, the $12 a day commuter boat down the Amazon. You can go for two days or six days, I suppose, and very rich experience. You know, the best part about going on these boats is simply to be thrown on board with 80 or 100 or 150 Brazilians from the Amazon to do what they do, to buy what they buy, to eat what they eat, and to help uh, the local economy while you're doing it. And that's real travel. Seth Kugel, New York Times Frugal Traveler, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Seth Kugel's Twitter address is at Frugal Traveler, and his blog and articles are online at NewYorkTimes.com. Up next, it's Croatia. End your calls at 877-333-RICK. Shalom, shalom. I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. That was Hebrew for I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Call him Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. 
Croatia is a rising star among European destinations for a lot of Americans. When I think of Croatia, I think of romantic little bars right on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. I'm joined by a friend of mine who's a fellow tour guide, Marjan Kriskovic. And Marjan, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Do you know these bars I'm thinking about in Dubrovnik? There's a bar oh, called yes, The Hole the in the hole Wall. Oh, yes, The Hole in the Wall, yes, Buja. And then, and then uh, Valentino's <laughs> Bar in Rovine, which Most is sort certainly. of a, a mini Venice there farther mm-hmm. north on the uh, Croatian coastline. What is the magic of these bars? And they're, to me, they're very romantic and typically Croatian. Yes, they are. It's the quintessential experience when visiting a little coastal town in Croatia because it really brings you close to the lifestyle, to what life in places like that is. It forces you to slow down to watch people and just be taken by the magic of the of the place which is around you the sea the the beautiful blue azure adriatic sea the the skies the seagulls the magical cities around. And you go there at magic hour when the sun is low in the sky yes. and the lights are warm yes. and the colors are rich yes. and people are just uh, glowing with each other's There's company. There's certainly nothing like it, yes. And they're both also physically quite humble. In the case of Dubrovnik, you've got these magnificent medieval walls. It's called the hole in the wall because mm-hmm. you slip through a little tiny door and you find it these simple chairs and probably free umbrellas from the company that sells the drinks to the mm-hmm. place. People are just nestled there in the rocks with their chairs. And we go to the Valentino's Bar in Rovine, and you're literally sitting in the rocks. They give mm-hmm. you a pillow as mm-hmm. you come in. They've got chandeliers set up on the rocks. You nestle into a little crevice in the rocks with your travel partner, sitting on that pillow, mm-hmm. and they'll bring you the local drinks. That's right. That's all it takes. It doesn't need any embellishment. It's perfect as it is, and you really get to savor up close what the Croatian coast is all about. It doesn't need any additions. Now, Croatia is not one of Europe's more affluent or wealthy countries, but there you've got all the magic, everything you need in just a humble shell, rocks on the beach. Yes. What are the trends in tourism right now in Croatia? Um, I suppose just getting away from the trends that were very much in vogue in the times when Croatia was still part of Yugoslavia before its breakup in the early 1990s, Big toaster-like hotels where you could stuff as many German tourists as you could. And now, of course, bringing out the beauty of the Croatian coast, which can take large masses of tourists without spoiling it. So emphasizing the personal contact of the people, experiencing the country, its food, and what it's all about, not doing it in a resort-type setting, which could be anywhere in the world. A toaster-like hotel? They do kind of remind you of... Toaster, yes. Put people That's in, give the... them a tan, and pop them out and put another exactly. slice in. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's a, a heritage of the communist times, I think, yes, because yes, exactly. when Tito was running the show in Yugoslavia times, everything was in mass. Everybody's going to exactly. go on vacation here. It was all about numbers, camera. whatever looks good on paper. Look, we're more productive. We're doing more, more and more people. So they'd get together in Belgrade and they'd think, okay, well, how can we be like fanatically efficient. Mm. Everybody goes on vacation at the same time. We'll serve them a thousand dinners. They'll all dance at the same time. We'll eat a great fish. You'll go back and you'll work hard in the factories. Right. <laughs> in fact, I think Tito had this passion for taking Yugoslavia and thinking, okay, we need refrigerators. This town will make refrigerators. Okay, right. we need cars. That town will make cars. Right. Is that true? It is to some extent. So these were, as you were saying, some of the aspects that Yugoslavia, following the uh, communist planned economy, which of course, has nothing to do with market economy, supply, demand, and uh, obviously leads long-term to economical problems. But at the same time, there was a mix and in, in influence of the market economy uh, as well. Because well. so Yugoslavia always had its sort of mix of uh, market socialism. Exactly, yeah. Now, the unfortunate thing is, I, I think I remember I was in um, Montenegro, and I went up to the uh, historic capital, Setinja, and apparently Setinja was the place Tito said would make refrigerators. Yes, with the Obot factory, yes. No, no. So that's great if, if Yugoslavia is together, but all of a sudden, Yugoslavia falls apart. There's a little country with one million people yes. called Montenegro, and they make refrigerators. It doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. And there were huge problems with the breakup of Yugoslavia, um, not just in terms of the war and political friction, but uh, really big economical problems that resulted from it. So this mass industry dictated top-down without Mm. adequate concern to the laws of supply and demand really is is causing a problem today. You had the Yugo car. Is Mm -hmm. that completely gone now, or are you still making cars there? Uh, The Yugo car was produced in uh, Serbia in the town of Kragujevac. I think it's been uh, taken over now by one of the Western European car brands. It was also bombed in the war in 1999 by NATO. Hmm. So the production, of course... So there's no cars being made. Uh, Mm. You know, I was impressed last time I traveled to Yugoslavia, just this last year. I thought I'd find, you know, 
statues of Tito and, uh, you know, memorials to Tito. Mm-hmm. There was a few Tito T-shirts in mm-hmm. Mostar. Mm-hmm. That was about <laughs> it. Uh, Where did he go? Tito never really went for the whole personality cult as some other Eastern European leaders. There were two statues of him, which are still out there, but uh, this big personality cult in the classical sense never developed. And nowadays, his whole persona is being reinvented by the younger generations, which, oddly enough, did not really get to know life in his time, and are looking back at this time through the eyes of uh, their parents, sometimes with nostalgia. Some see him as a bad person. It really depends. He's a very controversial figure. So some see him as one of the greatest uh, figures and peacekeepers of the 20th century, especially due to his role in the... uh, non-aligned nations which he founded. He was quite courageous to stand up against the Soviet uh, That's true. Empire. One yeah. has to give him that. Yeah. Now, when you think about the very complicated history of Yugoslavia, which was a country that was kind of created and apparently wasn't viable, mm-hmm. right. um, but over the ages, there's been a lot of movement of people for political purposes, mm-hmm. plantations of settlers, and all over the planet today, we've got in, in Israel and Palestine mm-hmm. and in South Africa and in Northern Ireland, uh, we've got people paying the price in the long term, for handling short-term political needs mm-hmm. by moving people to a borderland or a buffer zone or something yes. like this. Is there an example of this plantation of people in the past for political purposes that is uh, causing a burden today in former Yugoslavia? Of course. Most of the uh, political problems in the country have been caused by such resettlements. Some of the main ones were done by the Habsburgs, so the rulers of the Austrian Empire at the time, who settled uh, many different nations from different corners of the empire and the border areas, uh, which were constantly being attacked by the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And one of the major uh, groups were Serbs, whose indigenous homeland was at that point conquered by the Turks. And they, as refugees, were very happy to get a piece of land on which they could work. And they acted as soldiers in this literally military buffer zone that protected Western Europe from the Muslim Turkish Empire. So the Habsburgs, in other words, moved Serbs into areas outside of Serbia to serve as a buffer for the expanding Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And today you had a civil war and you have these uh, planted Serb populations Mm -hmm. that are at odds with the indigenous people from that region of this complex corner. But of course, after five centuries, it is hard to say who is indigenous versus someone not being indigenous. And today Yugoslavia is long gone and people are no longer speaking Mm Serbo-Croatian. They're speaking the same language, but it's right. Croatian or Serbian or Slovenian right. or right. Bosnian. Is that right? What is that, right. the terminology of the language these days? Well, uh, Yugoslavia used to have four official languages. It was uh, Slovenian and Macedonian, which are the most different ones, and are really there are very few connection points apart being from the Slavic group of uh, ah. languages. And then there was Serbo-Croatian and Croatia-Serbian, which many people don't realize. Croats and Serbs haven't been ancient rivals and enemies. In fact, for many centuries, they tried to get together in peace uh, while they were um, ruled by other political powers. And at one point in 1850, they got at this big meeting in Vienna trying to bring the two languages together to unify all the different dialects and make it into one language which would tie them together as Slav brothers fighting against the oppressors, and that was Serbo-Croatian. There were two versions of it because there were a few points in which they couldn't agree, but these were really just minor, minor details. So practically, and, and the Croats did, were happy with it being called Serbo-Croatian. Um, in Croatia, it would have been called Croatia-Serbian. Okay, and today but, that notion is gone. Exactly, and you've, got, you've got Serbian and you've got Croatian. With the animosities for the first time between the two ethnic groups rising, uh, this process started in World War II. When they started, just as artificially as they put these two languages together, they started putting them apart. And again, this was reversed again during Tito's times. And in, in the process of the 1990s, they started separating them again. In fact, there was fact, an idea... In fact, making up words just to distinguish exactly. your language from the others. The idea was changing something like two-thirds of the Croatian language overnight. And I remember going to high school, there were uh, books that were written in the new Croatian language, and they had a Croatian-Croatian dictionary at the back of the book because... A Croatian-Croatian dictionary. Of course, there were old words which haven't been used in centuries. Now, maybe the solution to all of this is the whole notion of the European Union, where all of these many different ethnic groups are coming together and celebrating the ethnic variety of Europe, but finding a way to to live and trade together in a free trade way. So can you say as a member of former Yugoslavia that as more and more of Yugoslavia gets integrated into Mm -hmm. the EU, 
this is a, a positive and a hopeful um, evolution? Yes, definitely. Because this is the fundamental idea of the European Union. Of course, what brings people closer together and quickens the process are economical movements and monetary interests. But it is keeping the peace and bringing people together to live... Peacefully uh, coexist. Pe exactly. And, and today, just in a nutshell, what is the status of the, the major countries of former Yugoslavia in regards to the European Union? Who's in, who's out, who's coming? Um, at this point, only Slovenia, one of the six republics, is a member of the European Union. Croatia is being uh, fast-tracked and probably entered the European Union within the next year or two. There are negotiations which have been opened with uh, Serbia, Montenegro, and Macedonia. They're hoping in the future to do the same with Bosnia, where there are some other So in a decade, would you bet that most of the former Yugoslavia would be part of the EU, and that'll be good for those people? Hopefully, yes. And in the meantime, Montenegro, less than a million people, is using the euro, whether Europe likes it or not. Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Marjan Kriskovic, a friend of mine who's a tour guide from Croatia. And we've been getting a little historical perspective and background. Now I want to talk specifically about traveling in Croatia. Of course, Dubrovnik is the most important site that everybody's got to see. I love Dubrovnik. But I'll tell you, I was there this summer, and the cruise ships just emptied out. You could not walk down the street. <laughs> yes, it can be quite overwhelming. But as with every city of this type that gets hit by the cruise ships, there are ways of getting around it being there at the right hours, planning ahead, and just avoiding those crowds. What those people uh, do with the cruise ships is they get just a couple of hours to hit the town, and they're out of there. So the tenders come in, the the smaller cruise ships dock at the at the port. Grush, Grush. Grush, yes. And their shuttle buses take them in, mm -hmm. and everybody is inundating this walled mm -hmm. town. Right. <laughs> Literally, you you're, you wait in line to walk around the wall, you shuffle in this human traffic jam down the main boulevard. Yep. I imagine it's hard to, to buy a cup of coffee almost, <laughs> yeah. and everybody's there for four or five hours. Then they go back to the boats. I was there that same night, go out to the hole-in-the-wall bar, magic <laughs> as can be. It is, exactly. And uh, the difference couldn't be bigger. Really gets inundated, and it looks like an invading army coming from all sides. But ultimately, it's very short-lived. Let's think of Dubrovnik, Marianne, as a springboard for other activities, because the classical place to go from Dubrovnik is Korčula. It's mm -hmm. a very touristy little mini version of Dubrovnik. Mm -hmm. I think it's overrated. Mm -hmm. What would you say for side trips from Dubrovnik? One of the most popular options is uh, just to the south, the Bay of Kotor, which is already Montenegro. It's a short distance, but uh, connections between the two places have been interrupted due to the war because of the Montenegrinian state taking part in the aggression and attack on Dubrovnik in the 1990s war. Uh, but but point now, is, is, now it's wide open. You exactly. Can get the border exactly. Easy. Very reasonable day trip to go to the Gulf of Kotor, K-O-T-O-R, mm -hmm. from Dubrovnik and, and actually have a, a Montenegro Exactly. Experience. A whole different uh, country. Amazing uh, mountain slopes rising right up from uh, from the sea, the deep bay with islets in the inlet, uh, the walled town of mm. uh, Kotor. Um, it's, a, it's an exotic place. Exactly. Now, yeah. for a more uh, contemporary sort of powerful experience, mm. I love taking a, a ride for a couple of hours inland from Dubrovnik and go to Mostar in Bosnia. Mm. Definitely, because the, the contrast couldn't be bigger. You just literally within a few miles of air distance, there, there's a whole different world. Because for over five centuries, that was the division line, the border between the Christian West and the Muslim uh, So this Turkish is where East. Christendom and Islam come together. That's right. And there's going to be some stress and friction. And when people don't figure it out, there's going to be some violence. And, and Mostar was one of the most highly mm -hmm. fought over mm -hmm. parts in the war. And today they're repairing things. And mm -hmm. it is, is it from your experience, safe for an American traveler to go there? It definitely is, yes. And it's a booming mm -hmm. little uh, oh, economy yes. that's coming out. Yes. A very warm welcome. It's amazing to see the fast rate of uh, Mostar. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Marjan Kristovic from Croatia. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Frida's on the line in Hayes, Virginia. Frida, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Some uh, girlfriends and I are, are leaving and um, going to Croatia and Slovenia, and we're just interested as far as is any kind of particular food or wine mm -hmm. or that kind of thing that we should not miss. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of things. Of course, each area has its own regional uh, distinctive foods. When you go to Slovenia, one of the great things about it is um, everything and nothing is typical for it. It tends to absorb all the influence from all its neighbors. So you've got the uh, 
foods that you would consider typically Germanic, like all your sauerkrauts and sausages and schnitzels and so on. But at, at the same time, the Mediterranean's right there, so combining with with pasta and light salads and uh, fish. Um, so this would be kind of a, the norm for Slovenia. Once you get into Croatia, you're probably going to hit the coast. And of course, seafood would be its highlight. Again, a lot of the Italian or let's say Venetian rather influence that you would find here. It's a lot of different um, pasta, risotto dishes that would combine with the seafood in different ways. Calamari done a thousand and one way, whether it is stuffed, grilled, baked, uh, you name it. Especially when you come up north, if you're going from Slovenia first to the Istrian Peninsula, you would hit a lot of culinary highlights there. With uh, their, It's a famous truffle region, a particular region in Croatia. It's one of the best regions for truffles in all of Europe, uh, both for the black and the white truffle. Again, combined in all different uh, ways from pasta dishes with scrambled eggs, with uh, wild asparagus. The minced meat sausage grills, uh, the chivapcici. Oh, chivapcici. <laughs> oh, maybe. Now, this is a very popular dish, of course, throughout the wider region. It originates from, uh, from Bosnia, but you would also find it throughout Croatia. It was first brought uh, by the uh, Ottoman Turks who came all the way up to that point. Basically, it would mean uh, little kebabs. Chivapcici, and do you, kebabcici. does that Ivar go hand in hand with that? Oh, yes. And Explain Ivar, because that's very important to understand yes. the Ivar. You can imagine Ivar as a thick, uh, red, uh, really bright red sauce, and it puts a lot of first-time travelers off because they immediately think it is really hot and spicy. But it's uh, actually not. there. It can be either mild or really spicy, depending on how you like it. And it's essentially uh, different types of vegetables, bell peppers, onions, uh, mm. eggplants, and so on and so on, uh, grilled and stewed and put into that sauce, which goes perfectly with any kind of meat dish. Frida, I can feel Marianne's energy picking up as we talk about food. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> and the wine. I, I guess and the wines are probably excellent. Of course. Well, the of wines of, of Istria, right? Isn't that yes, a popular yes, thing? Yes, especially though? Istria. You've got a wonderland of ways to eat your way through Croatia and Slovenia there, Frida. Good luck on your trip, and thanks for your call. Thank you very much. We'll take more of your calls for tour guide Marjan Kriskovic in just a moment as we explore the ins and outs of Croatia and get you away from all the cruise ship crowds in Dubrovnik. We're at 877-333-7425. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And you can post your travel reports about Croatia, or anywhere else for that matter, on our online message boards. Look for the radio section at ricksteves.com. Imagine to go in less than a generation from big-box hotels in a communist-based economy to one of Europe's darling coastal destinations. Boy, that says a lot about Croatia. Let us know what you've found in Croatia as we continue with your calls at 877-333-7425. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Marjan Kriskovic about his homeland, Croatia. Deborah's on the line in Marietta, Georgia. Deborah, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? Good. Do you have a thought about Croatia for Marianne? I do. Marianne is bravo. Is bravo. I lived in Croatia for a year back in the 80s, um, 1986 to 1987, mm-hmm. and I completely fell in love with the country. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I haven't been back there since, and I'm dying to go back. And um, oh. one of the things that I loved the most about Croatia was klapa singing. Oh, And yes. I heard or I, I saw on the internet or something, that there is a big festival, I think, every summer in Omish. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would love to go in the next few years to that festival, but I don't know anything about it, like how a foreigner would get there, what, how you would get a ticket, or, you know, De- I just Debra, love, ex- yeah. let, let's let um, Marianne explain what klapa music is for our listeners that don't know this beautiful slice of Croatian culture. Marianne, okay. explain klapa. Uh, so klapa music is essentially a cappella Musical choirs, um, anywhere from five to eight singers on the average. It's uh, mainly male singing groups that will 
use some kind of little acoustical uh, background to emphasize the, the typical Dalmatian songs that they're singing. And um, Use some acoustical background. What do you mean? Well, these kind of beautiful old towns. Or use a, use a, a venue that is evocative yes, of yes. crochet. Because now that you said, I've seen three or four klapa groups singing, mm-hmm. and they choose beautiful places yes. to sing and share their yes. culture. And it does the perfect backdrop for it. And it's uh, not just something to uh, really entertain the tourists and so on. It's really what klapa music was made for. It, you can't separate it from the little coastal communities like that. Deborah, what's your experience with klapa music in Croatia? Well, I just, my host father that I lived with listened to it a lot, and um, it just grows on you. I'm, mm-hmm. just, I'm a big singing fan anyway, and, and especially of a cappella, so it just, I totally glommed right onto it. It's just the most beautiful thing you've ever yeah. heard. It's charming. There's something lilting about it, and you know it's purely Croatian. It and is. you know, you can see it on stage in Dubrovnik, but you can also stumble into a little klapa group practicing mm-hmm. in the church rec room, exactly. you know, on, on a Wednesday night. I was in Motovun mm-hmm. in Istra, a little mm-hmm. hill town, mm-hmm. Wandering around after dinner, just sort of uh, getting a nice walk, I heard klapa music coming out of a window, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. and the woman saw me open the door, who was the conductor, <laughs> and she ran over to the door, and I thought she was going to chew me out and say, "This is private, get out of here, you tourist." <laughs> and she opened the door and she pulled me in. She gave me a chair to sit and just quietly enjoy their practice session. It was one of the most magic experiences of my trip. It's very quiet, melodic, um, soothing, and uh, when I close my eyes, thinking of klapa music, I can just see the the sparkle of the sun on the on the blue Adriatic and it's again it's it's essential for a Croatian coastal experience. Deborah, thanks for your call. Thank you. Marian, the Croatian capital, Zagreb, is a place that I didn't get to until just a couple of years ago. What a delight. I mean, it has it doesn't really have any famous sites and is a workaday town. Mm-hmm. But boy, you feel like you've, you've reached the sort of urban heartland mm-hmm. of Croatia. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about uh, visiting Zagreb. Well, uh, just about one in uh, five Croatians lives in Zagreb. It's got close to a million inhabitants. So it's a fair-sized city. And uh, it accounts for somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the economy of the entire country. So a lot of things are very centralized, centered around uh, Zagreb, a lot of different, uh, not just economical, cultural institutions. It's in every sense the the beating heart of the country. And if you're in Dubrovnik, which 90% of the Americans that go mm-hmm. to Croatia go to, and maybe that's their only experience, you're probably not going to see the real youth scene. But if you go mm-hmm. to Zagreb mm-hmm. and it's the university flair and mm-hmm. all the cafe scene, tell us a little bit about that. Again, it's a, it's a big city. It has a lot of things to offer in uh, in terms of uh, different artistic movements, the, the large student population, of course, influences the... So the cafes are just thriving. Yes, yes, especially Sunday mornings, the usual Austro-Hungarian tradition that Zagreb has. There's an area called uh, Spitza, where it is really essential to go to see and be seen on Sunday morning. Put on your best stuff, your big shades designer eyewear and whatever. Sunday morning. And, oh, yes, of course. People dress up and go out yeah. for a brunch or something. You know exactly to which seen. bar where the president will be. Actually, you can walk up to him and uh, state your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's, that's cool. Yeah. Now, so Zagreb would be the urban Croatia. If mm-hmm. you want the Grand Canyon of your country, mm-hmm. you'd uh, have it in a lush forested area. It's a terraced, mm-hmm. a wonderland of terraced lakes mm-hmm. and countless waterfalls. Pleetvica National Park. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. It is just about uh, as incredible as an experience of nature can get. It is 16 lakes who go through an elevation difference of several hundred feet and are interconnected with waterfalls. And uh, the water is saturated with minerals. And when the light hits the surface of this water, it produces the most amazing shades of turquoise and blues and greens uh, against the backdrop of the forest and the white limestone rocks. It's perfectly crystal clear, and it's... And it's um, beautifully preserved and taken care yes. of as a national mm-hmm. park. Mm-hmm. So people can go there and easily walk through this very yes. memorable wonderland. It's very easy, easy to experience. There's a system of boardwalks and paths that goes for many miles, zigzagging in between uh, these incredible waterfalls and lakes, and you can really get to experience them up close. Tiffany's on the phone in New Brighton, Minnesota. Tiffany, thanks for your call. Rick, how are you? Great. You heard Marianne just talking about uh, Plitvice National Park. Have you had an experience there? 
No, I haven't, but I, I want to go there. That's mm-hmm. like my number one mm-hmm. place I want to go to when I go to Croatia. I'll tell you, I, I, when I finally got there, I had never heard of the place, and it's got to be one of the top handful of natural experiences in all of Europe. Yeah, it looks great. Now, what are your thoughts or questions for Marjan? Um, well, I was wondering about going to Croatia basically as a female and traveling mm-hmm. alone. I'm pretty adventurous, mm-hmm. and I like to go anywhere and everywhere and kind of just get off wherever I mm-hmm. feel like. Is this, well, safe? That's what I'm really wanting yes, want yes, to Yes, yes, definitely. Know. It's uh, as safe as it gets uh, just about anywhere in Europe. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you would be, especially down on the coast where you have a bit of that uh, Mediterranean macho culture, you might get uh, the comment, hello, pretty one or so, but compliments is just about as far as, as it would ever go. So, so, so there's this fine, rude yeah. sort of whistling at girls that you, you get in other <laughs> exactly, countries. Exactly, but a, one has to take it a as a, in the context. Of okay. <laughs> in the context of do the you ask, Tiffany, do you ask uh, about safety because of the recent war there, or, or what is, why would you ask about how safe it is? I don't know. It's not as well-traveled as other parts of Europe, so I was just wondering if yeah, like, that's, that's, the non-touristy parts are Those are reasonable concerns, but, but really, I, mean, I think Marianne and I, we've both taken groups there for years, and when you've been there, you'll kind of wonder, why did I have these concerns. It's mm-hmm. sort of because it's mysterious and we don't know and mm-hmm. not, not a lot of people go there. If you worked really hard at trying to find an area that was not cleaned of mines, that you oh, might okay. find yourself in a dangerous spot because of the war, because there's a lot of mines. Isn't that right, Marianne? That's right. But uh, the areas that still have minefields are along the border with Bosnia, where there's very few roads taking you there and mm-hmm. very few towns, um, no, no major sites or anything. So no. it's very unlikely that you would actually end up there. I find, okay. I find, and Tiffany, you might want to take some notes here, that the most dangerous thing about Croatia are the nude beaches. Oh, yes. Because uh, <laughs> there's this whole culture. You see these signs, FKK, Freikorper Kultur. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And, and, and give us a warning here, Marianne. Freikörperkultur uh, is a German term because it was really in vogue in Germany in the beginning of the 20th century. And they brought it also over to the Croatian um, Adriatic coast. Now, Croatia per se is a very Catholic country. So people Keep have more the tendency. Exactly. That's how... And the Germans the, love to take their clothes off. Exactly. And <laughs> okay. that's, especially in the 80s and 90s, when this was at its peak, this is how you could recognize a tourist from the, from the locals. The locals were the one wearing the... Shirts. The, yeah, the shirts and bathing suits. <laughs> and the girls and are all topless on the beaches, <laughs> causing quite a stir in this conservative little Catholic Oh, of course, Croatian of town. course. Okay. But with time, uh, people are, um, are open. But you've got this association for basically naturalists, right? Nude sunbathing. Yes. And you take over beaches, and it gets uh, licensed for this, and they have That's the right. FKK sign there mm-hmm. as a warning to people mm-hmm. who might not want to see That's this. That's right. And as an advertisement for people who want to go there mm-hmm. and strip and lay on the beach. And it's good to get that warning because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about, um, uh, about on nudism, the beaches and so exactly, right. nudity on beaches. It's not these uh, gorgeous models and, I don't know, frolicking and doing uh, God knows what. Uh, <laughs> it's usually a lot of uh, elderly People who keep Germans. their clothes on, maybe. Exactly. So... Usually it's people freeing their, their body that shouldn't necessarily. And that, that's interesting because it does go back to the German passion for this. Germans love to go to Croatia. Yes. Germans are great sun worshippers. Germans love to take their clothes off in their own parks. Mm-hmm. And so they brought that into yes. Croatia because I know, travelers know, Croatia is famous for the mm-hmm. FKK beaches, mm-hmm. the nude beaches. And I was, I was relating this, uh, uh, Tiffany, to safety because uh, a lot of tourists don't realize that skin that has never seen the sun Mm-hmm. burns really quick. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you got to watch that. Hey, Tiffany, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks so much, Rick. All right. Yep, bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Croatia with Marjan Kriskovic. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Katerina's on the phone in Winona, Minnesota. Katerina, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Um, I also live in uh, Croatia, Um my husband also want to go uh, back to Croatia. I went uh, last year to Kortula, mm-hmm. and I was really, really surprised seeing how uh, beaches are so nice and mm-hmm. clean, and uh, sea is also very blue. And I encourage him to come with me sometimes because he's American, and he want to go. So. Uh, what is your recommendation, uh, which town, because I've been in a couple of them, mm-hmm. uh, what, which town you will uh, recommend for 
somebody who never been in Croatia to see? Um, I would definitely recommend uh, maybe Zagreb as a first introduction and also an easy place to fly into. And then take either a flight or train or bus into a community like Split, which is Croatia's second largest town and the largest city on the coast, which is uh, very vibrant. It's got a lot of history, basically a city that started as a palace of a Roman emperor 17 centuries ago. And you can trace all the layers of history up to the present. But it's not just the history. It's a beautiful setting. Again, it's the nature. It is the people, their temperament. Um, also the beautiful people, as I must add. As, and the uh, Riva in Split. Exactly. The, 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 promenade, the promenade, the beach along the, um, the city uh, facing the harbor front, uh, where it's, again, essential to savor that cappuccino at least one time to uh, watch the world go by. Um, and then Katerina and her husband could take a boat out exactly, to the Exactly, to one of the many islands, choose it from there. Hvar, um, probably one of the most known one at this moment. Um, or also Korchula, or head down to Dubrovnik. So this this would be my choices, because then that whole island world uh, opens up, because Split is also a big uh, hub. And it's amazing how Croatian tourism has developed in these years, because Split, uh, about 15 years ago, would have been a place where all the people will go to just to uh, to transfer to a ferry boat, to a flight, to a bus, and just wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. It was kind of a run-down mm -hmm. city, and it's really flourished. And this is, again, a direction that Croatian tourism has taken in the recent years, evaluating other things, putting emphasis on other things that haven't been so much. You know, Split uh, really is a triumph that way, mm -hmm. S-P-L-I-T. Yes. Katerina, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Bye Thank now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rod's on the phone in Bellingham, Washington. Rod, thanks for your call. Yes, uh, thanks for having the show on Croatia. Yeah, you have a comment or a thought for Marjan? Well, I wanted to throw out there, uh, our family traveled in Croatia uh, rather early in the summer, mm -hmm. right around the end of June, and mm -hmm. we did miss some things on mm -hmm. the cultural side, some of the festivals and so on, but mm -hmm. uh, Dubrovnik, for example, was so wonderful to mm -hmm. enjoy uh, pretty much to ourselves, we felt like, because we just didn't have the crowds to deal with. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a lot of the tour guides, I don't know, encourage people to consider those those periods before things get so busy. Oh, yes. Uh, a place like Dubrovnik is a wonderful place to visit year-round. It's not just a place to go in the summer, because uh, throughout the winter you have the mild Mediterranean climate, uh, very pleasant temperatures, a lot of sun, and uh, there are a lot of things going on in the winter. In fact, I myself love spending uh, Christmas or New Year's Eve there, and uh, really enjoying the wonderful mild climate it has to offer at the time without the crowds, with uh, lower prices, and a much more, and I would say, genuine experience. Rod, thanks for the call. Thank you. Brent emails us in Walla Walla, Washington, and Brent writes, uh, Public transportation is quick and easy. Plus, old ladies await you at the terminal, so getting a room is easy. Private accommodations. Does that still happen? I know when I was a kid, oh, it was yes, every it time does. I came in, you have all mm -hmm. these women waiting at the bus station, mm -hmm. wanting you to come home with them and rent a room to you. Bus station, coming off the ferry boat, you name it, any kind of major form of public transportation, you will have them there with these little booklets for photographs of so the accommodation. Bad, so that they're saying. Exactly. And uh, you can choose exactly what you like where you want it, the price, right there. So these are soba. Soba is the local word for bed and breakfast. Exactly. And, and these women, are a lot of them are widows. A lot mm -hmm. of them uh, are supplementing mm -hmm. a, a meager income, and they'd love yes. to have you buy for $40 for a double or something Exactly. Like it's a wonderful way of uh, staying inexpensively in, in the country, but also getting to know the people up close, which is an experience which you probably won't get in a hotel. I remember coming into some remote town in Croatia a long time ago with a, a minibus full of tourists, and I would come into the town, and there'd be a man on a bicycle biking next to my minibus yelling into my window, Soba, Soba. <laughs> he saw nine tourists coming into town. He's going to bike after them and lasso them. Uh, but the Soba, staying in people's uh, homes, bed and breakfast, one of the best things uh, for budget travel combined with a mm -hmm. great cultural insight. Definitely. When you have a breakfast in the uh, interior of Croatia in a Soba, it can be quite an impressive meal. Tell us about a traditional breakfast in an in a interior farmhouse. Well, it would be definitely a big breakfast. In Mediterranean countries, you would be used to very small breakfast, just a coffee and a big bread roll. But uh, Croatia has more abundant breakfast. They have to be your scrambled eggs. There has to be some uh, ham and cheese and uh, I remember bread peppers. Rolls. Oh, yes, uh, grilled peppers, fresh peppers. Wonderful grilled fresh yeah. peppers. Yeah. This is Travel with Eric Steves. We've been exploring Croatia. 
with the help of a Croatian tour guide, Marjan Kriskovic. Marjan, let's uh, cap this Croatian experience at sea. People think of the Dalmatian coast when they think about Croatia. Yes. And there's wonderful ferry connections from island mm-hmm. to island. Share with me one reason to go to the trouble of getting on a boat, leaving the cities, and going out to the islands of the Dalmatian coast. Well, the Croatian coast offers one of the most dramatic and impressive coastlines that all of the Mediterranean has to offer. It has over a thousand islands, most of which are accessible by ferry boat or other connections. Almost like pearls lining these islands, you have these wonderful ancient cities whose urban history spans 3,000 years back against the beautiful backdrop, again, of the blue Adriatic. You always have the contrast of the white limestone, which is the main rock that makes up the islands, the cities, the structures, and then the other side, the blue of the sea and the blue of the skies, which always match together in a myriad of different shades. So, I don't know. It's <laughs> complement that with <laughs> a, warm, <laughs> a warm Croatian welcome and a nice plate of fresh seafood. Exactly. You got yourself a good Mediterranean yeah. experience, Croatia style. Marjan Kriskovic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You can describe your travel experiences with us in the form of an original haiku. Submission details are in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Here's an example of what our listeners are writing. Matt Harmon from Charleston, West Virginia, sent us this haiku after hearing one of our programs about Bulgaria, where he traveled to attend a friend's wedding. His friend's mother worked at a mud bath in Petrick and offered Matt a chance to take a quick dip. Here's what it felt like. Feet sink through soft mud. Thick sweat runs to green water. Limbs cool in hut shade. Grace Chen from Seattle sends us this tasty one. Italy's sweet gifts, gelato and Nutella. What happy girls need. And Christine Forster from Chicago praises the restorative power of a good vacation. Leaving my hometown, hungry eyes with tired limbs, life is fresh again. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for production help and to Cheryl Harris for reading today's haiku. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.